2: hello and welcome to outward slates podcast that brings you all the queer culture and politics your heart could desire this valentine's month i'm jules gill peterson your resident transsexual extraordinaire
1: i'm christina coderucci a senior writer at slate and i'm thinking of getting my first adult pet This will actually be a surprise to my wife when she hears this. She hasn't consented to this, but (laughs) I realized that it was time for a pet when I was out on the patio of a bar the other night and a gigantic rat. Just skittered by, and my first reaction was like, oh, "Hi, little guy!"
0: Oh hi, no! Dude. I was like, mm,
1: <laughs> "I need another, a better outlet for that impulse."
0: Than a rat at a restaurant.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and you know, I've really been struggling with the seasonal depression this past month. It's been it's been bad this year for whatever reason. So I just wanted to say, very, very earnestly, that knowing that I get to talk with you two beautiful people today and with our lovely listeners, has been like the only infusion of sunshine that I've had in a while. So Aww. thank you for that. And spring cannot come soon enough, oh my God.
1: Well, you're the sunshine in our lives too, Brian. Yes.
0: Aw, thanks. Let's get
2: that vitamin D and let's see if we can get the <laughs> serotonin <laughs> pumps flowing today. Yes, please. <laughs> well, this episode is kinda gonna take the temperature of how sexuality is being represented and censored in two acts that we think are important to connect. First, we'll talk about the return of a nasty little legal Latin phrase, (laughs) no promo homo, in the form of Florida's recent Don't Say Gay Bill, putting the new right-wing emphasis on censorship, book banning, and the outline of teaching about racism, American history, queer people, and gender in a broader context. Is all that's old really new again? Didn't we already do this whole banning any discussion of gay people in the 1990s? Why are we being forced to relive the worst parts of that decade anyways? We'll we'll take a deep dive into what's happening with these new kinds of laws and also what we know about organizing against them. And then, speaking of a good revival for a change, we're talking the re-release of Short Bus, John Cameron Mitchell's 2006 film that broke boundaries and titillated audiences with its frank depictions of real sex in early aughts hipster New York. Looking back after a decade and a half, we wonder what has changed in the way sex is represented on screen and in popular culture, especially queer sex? What do we owe to Short Bus? And what about it couldn't be done today, either because it no longer feels groundbreaking or because we would find it in bad taste? But first, as is our gay custom, it is time for pride and provocations. Brian, do you want to kick us off?
0: I do. So this is a bit minor, but because it caused the three gay men in my house to groan and like not in a fun way when it happened, I thought I should (laughs) share it with the group. So The Gilded Age on HBO Max, love it or hate it. It contains queers. This is good. Specifically, there is Christine Berinsky's son. The character name is Oscar Van Ryan, played by the actor Blake Ritson. Oscar is a charming, indeed wild type who flits and fops in and out of ornate drawing rooms, like plucking roses from vases and turning them into boutonnieres and that kind of stuff. He's also naturally carrying on a relationship with a man in his own rooms somewhere across town. That's all great, okay. But in a recent episode, we saw them knowing each other in the parlance <laughs> of the show. Uh, in bed and they were you know naked and it's hbo so they were like very naked
1: that's nice
0: yes (laughs) still
1: waiting for the provocation we're
0: getting there we're getting there (laughs) i just wanted to accept the scene for a show that is apparently pretty well researched the muscles on these actors are like not period appropriate, and i'm going to explain why this is this is provoking to me so oscar is oscar is only slightly less jacked than his beau (laughs) but that guy looks like henry cavill and superman like it's like that level of like gem Body. So I looked into this a bit. There were absolutely some bodybuilders that existed during the 1880s when the show was set, but they were more associated with the circus than with like the upper classes that the show is mainly focused on. And it just was like not super possible for people to have that kind of gym modern physique, right? Like at the moment. To be fair, Gilded Age is hardly the first show or movie to sort of retcon modern gay male beauty standards into the past, but it's frustrating to see it again all the same. This could be a whole segment on its own, so I don't want to get too deep into it. But like we did not feel gay men the pressure to look like this until the 90s. And it's mm. just very frustrating to see this very kind of oppressive idea of what gay men should look like in a you know sexual context anyway, projected back onto our history and our ancestors as well. So provoked by that. Glad that there's gay characters in the show. That's fun. But I wish that they looked more like they would have looked in that period just to give us a break from that
1: wow i love this provocation <laughs> yeah. and in fact It makes me think of an episode of this podcast that I just listened to. It's Avery Truffleman's podcast, Nice Try, about Mm. utopian experiments. Mm. And there's an episode about weightlifting and the origins of weightlifting. And in fact, I don't know if this is true of the period where this TV show is set, but there was a fear back when that being too muscular and lifting weights would make you muscle bound Mm -hmm. in a bad sense, like such that you couldn't move properly and your brain couldn't function properly. Because your muscles were too tight to like enable normal human existence.
0: Still, could be true.
1: <laughs> One might argue.
0: One might argue.
2: Now I love it. I feel so validated as like the prickly historian that watches shows. And <laughs> like, but here's the thing, because the thing too, right, is like I think what's so exciting about these shows set in past time periods is like when it comes to gender and sexuality in particular. Sometimes what people were doing in the past is so incredibly different from how we imagine today that i actually really wish people were being exposed to that and it's yeah. like we have other shows for muscles
0: right exactly yeah, totally. yeah it was it was it was not needed in this context mm.
1: i would just love because you hear a lot about actors beefing up for roles and i would have mm. loved for the actors in the gilded age to be told like don't move a muscle don't go out in the sun just Become make yourself a waif. as like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like tasty and, you know, I guess if you were an upper class, like gay man at the time, you were probably eating lots of delicious foods and not starving yourself right weren't you just probably like nice and plump
0: yeah I mean you can look at photos of wild you know he was sort of looked like a person who didn't go to the gym a lot you know but like right had a sort of easy life probably in a lot of ways to a point yeah it just did not need to be superman in that bad, but um that's fine yeah. <laughs> I'll keep I'm gonna still watch it so <laughs> Jules why don't you go next
2: sure well I also have a provocation I am provoked by what I am affectionately thinking of as the 100% made up, entirely <laughs> fabulated, not real, disinformation brand trademark mm-hmm. fake media story about trans people being mad at Adele. And, you know, one of the you know initial reasons I'm annoyed by it is like, we are mad at Adele. mad at Adele. That hasn't (laughs) happened, right? I mean, you know, other than, like, the horrific sexism and fat phobia that has circulated around her, like, yeah, Yeah. no, we, the fans, are not mad, and trans people are not mad at Adele. Of course, what, you know, happened ostensibly is that she said after receiving an award that she just really enjoyed being a woman. Mm -hmm. And as we know... United Kingdom and now increasingly the U.S. media being absolutely obsessed with scapegoating mm. trans people at every turn, making up literally fake stories about us in order to demonize us, pounced on this and said, well, trans people are hate Adele because, you know, trans people's number one agenda is for there not to be women in the very dumb and idiotic or that we don't want people to say woman, right? And so there's like literally, you know, these kinds of stories have been going on in the UK tabloids for years now, but we're really starting to see an uptick in the US. And so that's why I'm feeling provoked, you know, for our American listeners, right? I know we probably all in this country have like ongoing thoughts about the people in our lives, you know, who have been watching Fox News and who now watch OANN and those kinds of things it's just really disturbing to see these kinds of actual propaganda pieces yeah. that are also about the stupidest shit ever. <laughs> like, you really think trans people who, let's be real, aren't having a fun time right now care what Adele says? And, well, yes, we do, because we love Adele. But you really mm-hmm. think we would? that would be the focus of our politics? Like, there's also this kind of, like, dehumanizing bent to it that suggests that we're so out to lunch with our political demands that they're as random or sort of superficial (laughs) or linguistic. And it's just like, how dare you? And how dare you besmirch our beloved Adele who like credit to her, of course, was very happy to say that whoever identifies as a woman is a woman to her. And so Mm -hmm. that's the end as far as Adele is concerned. So thank you for showing up for your trans sisters. But I have just had enough of this. And so, you know, as we're all keeping track of the slow disintegration of discourse and our media verse, like keep an eye out for these 100% USDA grade F fake news, (laughs) trans misogyny, transphobia stories. Had enough. I love Adele. Someday, I want to treat you both to my Adele karaoke. And by treat you, I mean scream-sing-at-you. With a bad British accent. Perfect.
1: Well, I'm gonna wrap us up with a pride. It's kind of a roundabout pride, so it'll take me a moment to get there, like Brian's. So, I was reading a piece in the New York Times Magazine entitled, The Joys and Challenges of Sex After 70 by Maggie Jones. Um, So, any kind of piece or research about aging and sex is of great interest to me, mainly uh, as a way to stave off fears of my own mortality blah, 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 all that boring <laughs> stuff. So this piece mostly talked about straight people. I think there was one mention of a gay male couple and all of their sexual woes were ones that you could probably think of, you've probably heard before, you know, in addition to all the physical changes that can make it harder to have pleasurable sex as we age, there are a lot of social barriers, a lot of them having to do with the hangups of straight cis men. So it was like so many couples in this piece told the same story about the man in the couple, being reluctant to use a vibrator, being threatened by the use of a vibrator or by the use of lube, feeling insulted that their partners needed lube. Um, and uh, this wasn't explicitly noted, but it was the subtext of a lot of these stories that the working definition of sex as sort of penis in vagina penetration was a barrier to finding pleasure, that these couples really had to work to move past that, to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, find a a new way to enjoy their sex life. And the more I read it, the more I was like, damn, we really have a head start here because this simply is not a paradigm that queer people find themselves stuck in Mm -hmm. because in part, because as we'll get to in our next segment, we have so little sex education about what queer and trans sex can be that we invented all ourselves and a lot of the things that these people are just now discovering we already have in our nightstands (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you know granted people who are in their 80s and 90s now are of a specific generation that had more rigid attitudes towards sex toward masculinity but I would wager that there are more straight couples out there than you'd think that still find themselves hemmed in by that classic understanding of what sex is, yeah. how it's supposed to be had, when it begins, when it ends, who's having an orgasm and how. And I, uh, it just made me really proud that we as queer people are in a position where, you know, we're still going to face some of those same challenges as we age, but we Our ideas of how we can achieve pleasure with a partner or by ourselves or with multiple partners has fewer of those boundaries that can make it difficult to just accept what feels good or explore what might feel good.
0: Yeah, or make it better.
2: I love that. I mean, it makes me think about once again, the straights. I mean, no hetero, but, you know, there's this great book by sociologist Jane Ward called The Tragedy of Mm -hmm. Heterosexuality, Mm -hmm. where she, like, talks about basically how she thinks heterosexuals need to learn from, in her case, lesbian feminists. on like, men need to learn how to desire women and how to understand their desire for women as being about their flourishing in the world and their pleasure and things like that. Mm -hmm. And this just seems like an amazing additional example of that. And also, like, oh, my gosh, Chris dina brian can you imagine waiting till 70 to realize that like the way you approach sex is maybe like not leading to the enjoyment in your own body like that's so sad like we don't wait till 70 to ask these questions we ask them when we're young and becoming sexually active and i just think that that makes us like objectively better at sex (laughs) yeah heard it here folks
1: families have a lot going on
0: As I'm sure our listeners, especially our Floridian listeners, know, Florida has become a real laboratory for frightening right-wing experimentation under the direction of the state's current governor and likely GOP presidential hopeful, probably, in uh, 2024, Ron DeSantis. On February 7th, DeSantis indicated his support for the most recent of these terrors, HB 1557, or the Parental Rights and Education Bill. He said about the bill, Quote, in terms of the schools, we've seen instances of students being told by different folks in school, oh, you know, don't worry, don't pick your gender yet, do all this other stuff. They won't tell the parents about these discussions that are happening. That is entirely inappropriate, end quote. Our own Christina Carterucci reported on this bill at the end of January. So I'm just going to read from the top of her very excellent piece to describe what it would do. Quote, the so-called Parental Rights and Education Bill would forbid educators from encouraging classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in primary school or at any grade level in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students. Christina continues, the wording is tactically vague, but the intent is clear. Part of a class of legislation colloquial known as don't say gay bills, which have been introduced in several state legislatures in recent years, the Florida bill, if passed, could easily be construed as a directive to educators to erase all mentioned of marginalized people's lives from the classroom. As Christina writes, this is not a new tactic from social conservatives, but in the current moment, erasure and censorship of all manner of offensive, quote, you know, scare quotes there, offensive ideas, theories, peoples, and whole books, especially under the banner of parental control, seems to be their main obsession. So to start our discussion, Christina, since you wrote about this so well, I wonder if you wanted to give a little bit of background on the don't say gay or no promo homo laws and just what they're all about.
1: Yeah, so these don't say gay bills do draw on the tradition of no promo homo laws. So those are laws, a lot of them were passed in the 80s and 90s, that forbid certain educational materials, usually the health education curriculum, from doing anything that promotes homosexuality. So some of them actually require materials to say homosexuality is not an acceptable lifestyle. Others just prohibit the mention of homosexuality. I just can't stop saying that word (laughs) because it feels so antiquated and so delicious. So they would prohibit teachers from mentioning homosexuality or anything other than hetero. So states have actually been repealing those bills slowly but surely over the past several years, even Alabama, you know, not known anywhere as a bastion (laughs) of queer rights. They repealed their law just last year. And a lot of times this was happening because LGBTQ Advocacy groups sued, and the states knew that the laws wouldn't hold up in court. And sure enough, there was a challenge to the no promo homo law in South Carolina, it made it to federal court in 2020. And the judge said this violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Mm -hmm. because it's discrimination based on sexual orientation, because it was specifically about keeping homosexuality, like that one particular sexual orientation, out of the classroom. What makes these new don't say gay bills different is that they purport to be identity neutral. So they're trying to get around these new protections that we have against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity by saying, discussion of any sexual orientation is banned in the classroom. Of course, that's not how they're meant to function because no ideological vigilante is going to bring a case against a school district that teaches about straight marriage.
0: Right. Yeah. The
1: insidious parts of these bills and Florida is certainly the one that's making the most news right now because activists say it's being fast tracked through the legislature they make little exceptions that would seem to make them more reasonable. So the Florida one, as you mentioned, has a carve out for age appropriate material. Mm -hmm. Well, that's extremely vague. It's subjective. So what teacher is going to risk hanging their career on that carve out? Mm-hmm. What teacher is going to go ahead and teach about ACT UP, let's say, and hope that a sympathetic judge would say, yes, that was age appropriate. You know, this lawsuit is frivolous. That's the part that's sneaky about these bills, that they're trying to make themselves seem judicious and unobjectionable. Another part of these bills that has less to do with the curriculum and more to do with What teachers can discuss with students is a part that basically would prevent a school from having any sort of a plan for a student around their sexual orientation or gender Mm -hmm. identity. So it would basically prevent Mm -hmm. a school from, you know, using a child's chosen pronoun without their parents' knowledge if the child is trans or experimenting with a new pronoun, you know, because kids do that. Kids change. They
0: would end up outing these kids to their parents.
1: Right. And so the Florida. Mm bill says, well, you know, you don't have to notify the parents if it would lead to the child being abused. So proponents of these bills are saying, well, whoa, 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 don't say that, that, you know, we're going to make children unsafe at home because look, there's this carve out that says, if you believe the child will be abused, like, of course you don't have to out them. Well, what teacher or school district is going to take the risk of financial ruin because the way these bills are enforced is through private action, private civil action, to take the risk that a sympathetic judge is going to be able to prove that the child was at risk of abuse. And, you know, the definition of abuse or mistreatment is the bar can be so high that if you merely want to protect a child from homophobia or transphobia at home, it would be very hard to prove that the specific definition of abuse was met Mm -hmm. when it hasn't even happened yet.
0: I think we should definitely take a minute to point out that this is about lawsuits from parents, like against schools and teachers, right? Like that is the mechanism of enforcement. It's sort Mm -hmm. of the citizen vigilante model that we saw in uh, Texas with the abortion law there recently. But it's being sort of propagated here in in a new context. And I think, as you point out in your piece there are groups of parents kind of waiting to do this. It's not theoretical. It's like there are right-wing activist parents who are sitting there ready to sue over the smallest little thing. So maybe talk a little bit more about how that works.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely part of a trend of right-wing actors trying to seize control over the classroom because of an idea and a myth that, you know, homosexuals and transsexuals are out there in schools trying to recruit unwilling students into their agenda. So in Florida, the law would be enforced by the fear of financial ruin on the parts of school districts. So parents would be the ones to bring a lawsuit against a school district. This is how the chilling effect begins because school districts and teachers that are already strapped for cash don't want to find themselves on the receiving end of even a frivolous lawsuit that has no basic fact that would vindicate them because they still have to spend the time and energy and money fighting that lawsuit. This is what the abortion bill in Texas has done. Even a couple of planned parenthood outlets have stopped providing all abortions. They're not even providing the abortions that are still legal because they don't want these lawsuit happy well-funded right-wing groups to bring frivolous lawsuits against them that would still take a lot of resources to fight. The other thing that the private right of action provision does is make it so that a court can't block it in advance. This is something mm. that the, the Supreme mm. Court has allowed with the Texas bill where usually if there's an egregious bill that would infringe upon queer rights, abortion rights, whatever, a reasonable court might say, I'm going to stop this law from going into effect until we can make a decision on it and the challenge will be heard and it's not going to happen until that happens. But because Florida has outsourced enforcement to private vigilantes, a court won't be able to say that. So in Florida, the bill, if passed, would be able to go into effect, even as it's being challenged in court, which it certainly will be or would be. Yeah, it's really
2: very disturbing. And I think that, you know, what I really appreciate about the way that you frame these distinctions in your article, Christina, is you help us understand, like, I think for all of us that have been feeling who knows when we want to date it to, but let's say at least since like, Donald Trump came down that escalator in 2015, like, are we doing the 90s again? Like, why didn't we already do all of this? Isn't this already settled? (laughs) Right. And I think, unfortunately, one of the sort of consensus or sort of triumphalist narratives that came around the legalization of same sex marriage in this country is that it made it seem like things had sort of been settled, like, oh, we did the thing, congratulations, even though obviously many, many different kinds of activists had pointed out for a long time that securing marriage rights is actually the narrowest, most conservative way to try and protect gay and lesbian people under the law. The thing is, the sort of, you know, new right Reagan era righteous campaign for a Christian ethno state in the United States has never stopped, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is like, Mm -hmm. you know, since Barry Goldwater, since, you know, the Southern Strategy, these groups of people have been organizing and working relentlessly and basically using state legislators as legal laboratories to you know, in concert with stacking the judiciary and, you know, sort of the mechanics of the Overton window to slowly and slowly push the envelope over time. And so I do really think that, like, although the sort of culture war echoes probably feel both exhausting in the way that they sound very similar to the 90s, right? Like, just the repackaging of vicious homophobia and then the rebranding of some of that homophobia as transphobia. On the other hand, right, it's like, oh, well, it turns out we actually don't have the civil rights and legal protections that we thought we had. And there's also a kind of broader strategy here, right? We talk a lot about moral panic mm-hmm. as the ostensible pretense, right? The actual fabrication disinformation and propaganda machine churning out these tired old tropes, right, that there's this tiny perverse minority out to recruit and spoil, right, the youth of America. And it's like, okay, well, that's the pretense. But when we also zoom out and ask, like, what do these bills accomplish, right? I think one of the things that's so important to talk about is the utter destruction of the public and public institutions, public education being one of them, right? I mean, these bills, like there's another one in Indiana that would also allow lawsuits against teachers for teaching any content that goes, quote, against religion or against (laughs) religious belief without (laughs) defining like, and, you know, of course, everyone's like, which religion? But, you know, it's like, okay, but hold on. The real provision that's so vicious in that bill is that the $10,000 penalties have to come from the teacher's salary. They are not allowed to come um, from yeah. any other source. That's prohibited under the law. You can't crowdfund and we're talking about states where teachers with master's degrees only make forty or fifty thousand dollars mm-hmm. a year at the high exactly. end. And so it's like, oh well, you know, sure the goal might be to turn public education into an evangelical Christian white supremacist affair where you can't learn about slavery, you can't learn about homosexuality and other things, but it's also (laughs) merely to smash the remainder of public education in this country, which has been, right, since the 1950s, the most politicized place in which problems of segregation play out in this country and closing the racial wealth gap and closing the racial achievement gap and all of these other insidious forms of white supremacy come through education. And so there's no surprise here. But I really think we're sort of witnessing this kind of like burn it all down moment, right? Yeah. And and I guess maybe that feels very connected to so much going on in the country right now, where it's like, people are sort of trying to attune themselves to what it means for there to be a very successful right wing movement in the country that actually is dedicated to destruction, right? Okay. Like, not just Like, you know, that I guess that's sort of the question I have for both of you is like, on my reading, I'm not even so sure that the parent groups who are ready to sue even care if like the content, because like, you know, on, on one level, we might say like one of the problems with the sly legal strategy here, of course, is that you can't actually have no gender or sexuality taught in school. I mean, it would actually be so hard, you really would need to develop, like, an Orwellian 1984-style yeah. propaganda. Like, totally. it's th- it's the most fascist idea of education I've ever heard, but it's also not possible because homosexuality and heterosexuality aren't treated equally in our culture to have a curriculum that doesn't mention the fact of men or women well that sounds suspiciously like the way these people paint trans (laughs) people exactly
1: and so i guess one
2: of my questions right is as i'm looking at the landscape right there's the content of the bills and i do think it's so important for us to educate ourselves on what's changing but then i kind of have this broader question is like is the real goal here not just to bring about the auto destruction of the public schooling system so that we move to a charter based model? And so then all of these families that basically would rather their kids be in private Christian white supremacist right. schools can get the state to pay for it? I mean, I don't know if that's, you know, am I reaching here? But that seems like part of what we're facing.
0: I think that's super astute. I mean, the thing that I keep thinking about with these is maybe more sort of. More basic than that, or simpler than that, which is that it's not just erasing content from like lesson plans; it's erasing sort of life possibilities for people, right? At least, or delaying them. Let's say, you know, we were just getting LGBT inclusive history curricula in some states in the U.S., like California and New York. That was j- this only been happening for like the last I don't know what five, six years, something like that. That's already new, and what they're trying to do with this is just erase the potential for kids to encounter this stuff, right? Because if mm-hmm. your home doesn't, if your parents and in the, in the place that you live and community maybe doesn't sort of offer you models, and I say this sort of as someone who grew up in a place where there weren't many models, right, for what it meant to be gay, and it I think it really delayed my, I've talked about this before on the show, like my coming out and sort of self-recognition even and just sort of understanding of what my brain was <laughs> like to live in. It is erasing just the potential for children to like, encounter visions of what their lives could be like because these parents don't and these activists don't want even that possibility to be introduced. Right. That is just so sad to me. I think it also kind of brings up this larger issue that I might sound a bit, I don't know, naive for even bringing up, but like this idea of like parental control over kids really freaks me out and the way it shows up here just makes my stomach turn. Yeah. But it is a strange impulse that like, I, I'm not a parent, but I just, I don't know, I don't get it.
1: To your point, Jules, about this right wing desire to decimate the public school system, you know, between all of these can't talk about race bills or can't talk about anything that makes white people feel uncomfortable bills, which Florida (laughs) is considering one of those too. Mm -hmm. I believe that It's going to become so unpleasant and so frightening to be a public school teacher in any of these states Mm. that people won't want to do it anymore, especially because teachers are already so underpaid. If you're afraid that you're going to say something that's going to get you sued, or if the parts of your job that you find rewarding, like helping a child figure out who they are and what kind of person they want to be and how to grapple with what's happening in society, if you can't even do that part anymore... Why would you want to be a teacher? I mean, most of the teachers that I know, the most rewarding part of their job is not teaching from the textbook, you know? It's about helping students understand the world and themselves and how they fit into it. I think what these bills will end up doing, in addition to all of the sort of self-evidently terrible things we've already talked about, is encourage teachers to stop teaching, to, you know, bankrupt public school systems, cause further staffing crises... I remember getting an email from one listener one of the last times that we talked about something like this, where I think we had only talked about the challenges of a student coming from an unsupportive home and going to a supportive school. I think we were talking about the pandemic and how school closures were particularly difficult for LGBTQ Mm -hmm. students. And a listener wrote in to say, well, I think there are also a lot of students that find their schools to be unsupportive and their Mm -hmm. homes to be a sanctuary. And it got me thinking about the fact that most students really only have those two places to find their people and to be supportive. Mm. And if you're taking one of those places away, it really narrows the possible world that a queer or trans student could live in. Another frightening element of, of this parental rights push, you know, in scare quotes, parental rights, whatever is, you know, there are a couple other bills in state legislatures right now that are being debated that would necessitate live streams of classrooms that parents mm-hmm. can access at any point in time. I think the effect of a law like that would be dystopian and frightening. But even the impulse, we talked about the the idea that's sort of animating a lot of these bills, which is that there are nefarious, you know, queer and trans teachers or queer and trans supportive teachers that are trying to, you know, change cis kids into trans kids simply by telling them that trans people exist. Right. So it's easy to sort of brush off these far right legislators that are putting forward these bills. But I actually think that idea is argued by more mainstream thinkers than you might initially think. Mm. You see it in the sort of Barry Weiss school of thinking, where these are people who say, of course, I'll use your correct pronoun. You know, of course, trans people exist and deserve rights. However, can't we agree that there's a trans contagion going on among today's Mm -hmm. youth? And don't you think children are too young to really explain who they are and how they'd like to be treated? I think we should be taking that kind of an argument a lot more seriously, because it gives a little bit of veneer of respectability to these more openly frightening and discriminatory bills.
0: Well, I think that is all the time we have for this topic. There's so much more that we could get into, but undoubtedly these laws and bills will continue to show up. So we'll track that. But for now, if you want to learn more, please check out Christina's really great piece in Slate. It was called The New Face of No Promo Homo Laws.
1: Hi, Outward listeners, it's Christina. Did you miss me? As you all know, I've been working on the new season of Slate's award-winning podcast, Slow Burn, for its ninth season, Gaze Against Briggs. I can't wait to be back in your Outward feed soon. But in the meantime, I wanted to tell you about a very special event I'm doing with the Slow Burn team at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com/slowburn. I'm so excited to see you there. topic is one of the most beloved films in the contemporary queer canon, a movie I personally would put in any welcome packet of (laughs) artworks a new queer should absorb (laughs) to acquaint themselves with our history and culture. Short Bus is a film about sex mostly and the role it plays in the lives of a group of weirdos living in post 9-11 New York. It was written and directed by the great John Cameron Mitchell. in 2006 and it stood out at the time in part for the fact that all the sex in it solo partnered group sex was unsimulated so the penetration the orgasms the ejaculate there was a lot of it all of that and it was all real if you've never seen the film maybe pause this podcast and go do that, but (laughs) I'll give you a quick primer on the storylines in case you don't have time to do that right now. So the main character is Sophia played by Sookian Lee, who's a straight sex therapist, or as she would say, couples counselor. Mm -hmm. She is married to a kind of lackluster dude, a cis man, and she's trying to figure out how to have her first orgasm ever. Then there's Jamie and James, A sort of lookalike gay couple who bring a younger guy into their relationship. He's called Seth with a C. (laughs) And they're also being stalked by an admirer who lives across the street. There's also Severin, who's a dominatrix for pay. She's kind of antisocial and is craving a real relationship with someone. All these people and much more End up mixing and mingling at a salon slash sex party run by Justin Vivian Bond, the inimitable trans performer. So I'm always down to process short bus, but <laughs> there is a reason we're talking about it now. It's gotten a 4K restoration. Uh, I looked that up. It's got something to do with the visual quality, which means uh, <laughs> you're going to see all the dicks in higher res than you ever, <laughs> right. and. It's being re-released in theaters around the U.S. and Canada. Unfortunately, it's not coming to D.C., John Cameron Mitchell, why? But it's already out in some places. So we wanted to revisit the film and what it meant then in 2006 and look at how it reads in the sexual and artistic milieu of 2022. So let's just start off with that first question. What was Short Bus in 2006 or on your first viewing? Jules and Brian
2: gosh I feel like you know this was sort of a big deal film for queers especially Mm -hmm. you know I mean I didn't get to it the moment it came out it was you know a year or two later while I was in college but you know I kind of remember an I was talking to my boyfriend about this last night after we we watched it and he's a decade older and he was saying like, yeah, he remembered, you know, being, living in this small town in the South with all these other queer people. And like one of the joys of going to watch it was that all these like cool queer artists and auteurs Mm -hmm. were like in the film, but not as main characters. And so part of it was just sort of, I don't know, just like this like pre-internet, pre-social media kind of like head nod moment of going to see like a cool film by but you by, you know, John Cameron Mitchell, a queer kind of culture making legend already at that point. And kind of just like having this like experience of being like, Yeah, here we all are. And like we <laughs> when we fuck on screen, it's real. It's um, is kind of how I remember it. And it's certainly the impression
0: that I've sort of held of it all of these years later. Yeah. How about you, Brian? So the film came out in 2006. I came to New York for college in 2006. Mm. And so So the movie's about you. It's definitely not about me. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was Brian's life. <laughs> I
0: was decidedly not in that milieu. I was at mm. Columbia, so I was like in a very different very different boring conservative Kind of New York uh, for at least for the first couple of years of college experience. But when I met my now partner, one of my partners, Cam, which would have been in I guess 2009, very quickly he. This is one of those movies that I think happens in a lot of relationships where you're sort of <laughs> testing or or not testing, but just like being sure that you're compatible by watching something together and seeing like what mm. the reaction is. He insisted on showing it to me. I think he had it on DVD already. Um in his in his booklet of DVDs that he, he kept at the time <laughs> and we watched it together. and I just remember thinking that it was, you know, in some ways challenging to me like I had not i because I was not yet in in any kind of milieu like that, but also that the the salon itself, short bus, which is what it's what it's called in the film, also struck me uh, as a kind of like, and I you know this word is a little bit, I don't know, difficult now, but, like, queer utopia. Like, it just looked like what I thought heaven might (laughs) look like in some way. Not just because of the sex, but because of all of the art and just, like, various kinds of expression happening there and including including sex. Um, And so it's always, it's you know, in in my mind, the movie is associated with that moment in time and also that relationship, of course, but um, also just being one of the early representations of what I thought queerness should create in the world, if that's not too grand. Yeah, so important, like very important.
1: What you mentioned, Jules, about your partner's reaction, that was sort of the sense or the feeling that I got when I watched it, where I watched it pretty early on in my, you know, coming out. And I was sort of grasping for all of these queer artistic signifiers and absorbing all of the culture Mm. that I didn't know about because why would you know about you know a a lot of this queer art unless you were queer and I remember watching it and feeling like oh my god I know who that is and almost feeling like oh like one of my friends made this even though I was not (laughs) friends with John Karen Mitchell or J.D. Sampson or like any of the other people in it but I was just like I know these people I'm part of this community that they're representing Mm. and also again like Brian I absolutely was not I would not know where to find a party like that, you know, with a gun to my head, but it gave me a feeling of, this is a community that I want to belong to, Mm -hmm, or this is a relationship mm -hmm. to sex that I want to have. At the same time, I won't say that I found it particularly titillating in a sexual sense. Like, I loved that all the sex seemed real and because it was real, but I wasn't particularly turned on by it. Yeah. And I, as we talk about, you know, what it means to portray sex in film and how maybe the way we think about sex and art has changed since then, I want to be able to explain exactly what kind of relationship to sex this movie has, which is, it's unique in that it explores sex not particularly in relation to sexual orientation and gender. Whereas a lot of movies about sex, I think, are about, you know, figuring out you're gay or or trying it out or, you know, figuring out who you're having sex with. Whereas this is really, it's more of a, a journey about, pleasure and not about it almost doesn't matter and is besides the point you know mm-hmm. who you're having sex with mm. um and just to put this in temporal context Shortbus came out one year after another movie about sex 40 year old virgin which uh, is oh
2: wow <laughs> just
1: one of the worst movies that's ever been made and you know a really like shame forward depiction of human sexuality mm. um, and it's that movie seems a lot more recent to me than short bus does maybe because Mm -hmm. like the way sex is treated in, you know, that sort of um, bro comedy world hasn't changed very much. Whereas um, as John Cameron Mitchell has been saying a lot upon the re-release of this movie, like short bus probably wouldn't be made today. Um, And I'm very excited to talk to you guys about
2: why that is or is not true and why oh my gosh okay can I make a confession to you Please. both just to you two? so plug your ears listen <laughs> <laughs> I sat down excited to watch it last night with the bf as I said and we just like did not like it on rewatch and I really Ooh, appreciate wow. what you I know I know I know. But I think I, I think I'm understanding why now, and I appreciate what you said, Christina, because like, okay, two thousand and six, right? To make this sort of film that doesn't see the problem of sexuality in terms of like identity, right? And you know, so you've got people kind of just like relatively polymorphous leaks, which right. like literally sometimes like turn to the left, kiss a woman, turn to the right, <laughs> kiss a man. Right? And like I get why that is like a big deal in 2006. And so I don't want to begrudge that at all. But as I was watching, especially the salon scenes for me, and especially the kind of infamous orgy scenes, all of these people having sex together in one room, I, as like a person, you know, who admittedly, happily, joyfully, has had sex with men and women and non-binary people, people with all kinds of bodies, right? and has experienced sex in my body in, you know, more than one gender identity and, and configuration of flesh. Like I was just like, no. <laughs> and and let me unpack that. And and then I'm curious if you want to, you know, burn me at the stake for this or not. But like, I felt two things. So like one, I was like, this isn't sexy. And then two, I was like, this is queer utopia and I don't like it. Um, And, and what I mean by that is this. To me, I actually think it was like, white hipster utopia Mm -hmm. and in some ways I think that what's daring about that in 2006 has become actually so taken for granted today albeit in a more desexualized manner like you know in terms of content that I just feel like it doesn't like it doesn't make me a certified horny person feel horny but it also like to me it's like the the vision of the film is like everyone is free to just feel generalized pleasure kind of behind closed doors i mean it's what maybe like i'm borrowing from a a scholar here damon young has a chapter about short bus in his book making sex public where he talks about it very much like you know as a form of sexuality that's like just absolutely classical liberalism like the Mm. free private individual Mm. who like becomes free to the extent that they can pursue pleasures that like don't really like have nothing to do with anything but like their own gratification and like that's nice too but like when I'm watching the orgy scene to me I'm like yeah but you can't do that you 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 wouldn't have a bunch of straight men in a room with gay men because that's like immediately how you're gonna get you know physical violence and fights happening Mm. it's dangerous like these sexual Mm -hmm. cultures actually can't just mix except in this sort of weird like kind of like well I you know I moved to New York a little bit later so I would have put as more of like a Bushwick like weird like L train you know industrial loft fantasy (laughs) where I'm like that to me particularly as like a person of color too where I just like have a lot of issues I guess with the trope of the like sexually repressed straight Asian woman and like the way that people of color are actually like very few in the film and like don't do much, but probably certify that it's like New York diverse, right? Which is like (laughs) on screen, never what New York you know, is in any way a approximation of New York City itself. And so that all sounds really like vicious. And I don't mean that like as a dig on the film per se, because in some ways I think what I'm reacting to is that to my mind, this kind of notion of sexual liberalism in America, the idea that the real measure of progress is just that everyone's tastes and pleasures go uninterrogated and we kind you know, Mm -hmm. has become so normal and banal. I think what we've gotten even worse at doing Is understanding that there are power relations embedded in these things and that actually like the different experiences of like the different people in the film, whether, you know, it's like watching a a, a white gay throuple of like, also it's just like the the early 2000 haircuts are like devastating to me. But like, I was just like, I don't know how to feel for these people because... It just seems so blasé, even though one of them is like literally suicidal until he bottoms. I need someone to explain that to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's the idea that sex can like magically cure depression. solve all kinds of problems. <laughs> yeah, including like chronic depression is really something that I don't think I fully grasped when I first watched the film. Um, because I was just so taken by the, the you know, like cultural flamboyance of it and also all of the sex. But what you're talking about the power relations part of it is something that John Cameron Mitchell has been bringing up in a lot of the interviews that he's Mm. done on the re-release where he's talking a lot about, you know, well, since the Me Too movement happened, it would be hard to make this, or Mm. I was in a film recently and there was an intimacy coordinator who had to ask my permission before someone even put their hand on my shoulder. And, you know, straight men feel so intimidated. They can't even ask a woman out. And so a lot of what he's talking about seem to be relations between straight men and women, which also mm. occupy like kind of a weirdly prominent role in the in Short Bus. I think there's a way in which I look Past and forgive a lot of potentially troubling parts of this movie because I inherently trust the people who are making it. In part because the the people who are in it, a lot of them already were coupled or, you know, and they spent a month in a room like doing trust building exercises together and stuff. And, you know, I love John Kramer Mitchell so much and so many of the other people involved in the film where if I'm watching, I watched the movie *Benedetta* by Paul Verhoeven, which involves a lesbian nun. Of course, click—you know, immediate click.
0: <laughs> but
1: the way in which this straight man depicted lesbian sexuality mm. was like just—they were there was so much boob grabbing and like fixation mm. on—you know—you see a woman's boobs and then you immediately orgasm and you kind know, of like <laughs> right. I don't know, like two people with boobs. Like sure, we like boobs, but it like just reaching right. out our arms and grabbing each other's boobs doesn't play like a huge role in the way most of us have sex with each other.
2: Speak for yourself, Christina. You're right. I, right. Don't shame. I am
1: speaking for myself and all of the people <laughs> who I've ever slept with. I recognize that there's a diversity of experiences under our umbrella. Yeah. But I go into a movie like that with like inherent skepticism. I go into a movie like Short Bus feeling like I can, I can give this movie a few passes. And I think that extends to my critical eye on power dynamics that I might feel weird about. So I find it hard to lose myself in a lot of movies about straight romances because mm. I feel like they replicate a lot of really you know, fucked up relationship tropes a lot of the times. This is a problem I have with um, whenever we talk about Christmas movies every year, I'm like, I can't enjoy a straight Christmas movie because it's all (laughs) they're all like super anti-feminist. Yeah. Well, when John Cameron Mitchell talks about the intimacy coordinator stuff, I feel like when I watch a movie that's that I, I don't know has been made by somebody who thinks about consent or, or has sort of a queer understanding of sexuality, I'm immediately more concerned for the people who are in it and their mm. working conditions. Mm. When I watch a movie like *Short Bus*, again, this is this is a lot based on both my assumptions and on reporting that's been done about the making of the film. Yeah, I feel a little bit less concerned about that, or like the power dynamics that I might find troubling in other films don't immediately become something that troubles me. And you know, that's that's like a thing that happens. That's a way that a lot of queer people get a pass, I think, or a lot of queer creators get a pass because we're so starved for content that gives Um, us something different or something that in any small way reflects our lives, that it's easier for me to look past stuff that would be disturbing in other contexts, or at least make me think a little bit more critically in other contexts.
0: Yeah. I mean, just to sort of speak to the things that we received more critically this time, I, I definitely did not remember that, like, as you put it, Jules Bottoming cured, like, you know, suicidal ideation. That was like If only If like, only God. and I and that so that was that was definitely sort of I don't know, I just I just maybe like Christina, I was a bit um blinded by the the sort of sweeping beauty of the of the salon. But like, you know, on the other hand, I mean I think if Justin Vivian Bond had led January sixth, I might have gone. Mm. Like just Justin, <laughs> Justin Vivian Bond could like do anything and I would I would probably like be fine with it. So
2: yeah, no, they are above like above and beyond their performances. So
0: that so cool. you know, they're impermature over the whole thing kind of. I really want to take me. that
1: quote out of context, Brian. <laughs> Please, and, and follow you with it throughout your career. Oh my god,
0: cancel
2: cancel, cancel Brian cancel Louder. No,
0: but I, you know what I mean. It's just they are just so yeah. the aura is just so uh, intoxicating that you can't not. Mm. But the white hipsterness of it. Also struck me like if in if nothing else struck me as dating the the movie in a way that uh. I had not expected. It just it really did feel of a moment in a way that I I guess because I was living closer to that moment like had not remembered it being connected to as strongly. But like of course it is and that. You know that that sort of I guess the question of whether whether something like that would be made today I I that you would no I mean you could not make it quite you would not want to make it that white like and that is striking I mean it's striking that that is that's what those scenes look like. You mean the men would have to have fades instead of
2: weird <laughs> Justin Bieber haircuts and thank the goddess for that. Yeah.
1: Well, there's obviously so much more we could talk about with regard to short bus and queer art today. Listeners, if you have thoughts that you want to share or if you find yourself prompted to rewatch or watch for the first time. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can always email us at outwardpodcast@slate.com.
0: That's about all the time we have for this month. But before we go, as always, we have some updates to your gay agenda. Christina, do you want to start us off?
1: Yes, I do. So Moderna started its human trials of an HIV vaccine late last month. Huge deal. It was developed using the MRNA technology that has been so successful in its COVID vaccine. I'm a Moderna gal myself, so this Mm. was like a really important moment for me to see Moderna succeed like this. And coincidentally, just a couple weeks ago, the French doctor who discovered HIV, the virus itself... Died. He was Mm. 89. His name was Luc Montagnier. Mm. He's French, so hopefully I pronounced that respectfully and correctly. So I'm going to recommend the Washington Post's obituary because the story of his life and what he did was a lot weirder and more convoluted than I knew. There's actually some controversy around who really discovered HIV. So the work that Montagnier did with people at the Pasteur Institute in Paris was obviously groundbreaking. It led to the blood tests that could detect HIV and all the treatments that now exist. But there ended up being a fight between the U.S. and France over who discovered the virus, which ended up in a legal battle over the HIV blood test because it would produce millions of dollars in mm. earnings for whichever lab could get the patent for the blood test. Mm-hmm. So eventually, Ronald Reagan and Jacques Chirac of France agreed that the you know respective labs in the respective countries would split the profits. And it's all just really slimy yeah. And, you know, just the idea of Ronald Reagan even being involved in that sort of negotiation about like, oh, aren't we so glad that we have a blood test that can uh, detect HIV now? Just a really good reminder of the profit motives that undergird basically every, you know, life-saving development in modern medicine and uh, then ultimately shape how and whether it's deployed. Obviously, a lot of echoes of the COVID vaccine in there and and Mm -hmm. how it has not been distributed equitably around the world. And Montagnier himself, uh, the French doctor whose obituary I'm recommending, he ended up actually going off the deep end a bit with some pseudoscientific theories about autism and eventually COVID. (laughs) So it's just a really interesting and a little messed up story that is like one, one little footnote, but it was a preoccupation of this man's life. For financial and probably personal reasons to make sure that he got the credit for discovering this virus because there's like Nobel prizes that come with that and stuff like that. And to read that as a little footnote in the story of HIV and how finally there there may be a vaccine because there's profit in it from Moderna. Uh. It seemed like a really appropriate coincidence that these two things, the death of this doctor. And for me, this, my first time learning about this story uh, happened like right alongside the the triumphant beginnings of this, hopefully really successful trial for the HIV vaccine. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I, d- I don't know anything about that either. I have to look it up. So for my gay Agenda item, it is a recommendation, but it's one that like It's sort of somewhat half-hearted, and I'll I'll explain why. So I don't know if anyone else is watching Star Trek Discovery. This is the... um, Yes! But me. Okay, do you watch it, Jules? Oh, yes. I'm a huge, (gasps) huge, huge Trek person. Oh, exciting. Okay, well, so this is great, because what I was going to ask for was that our listeners talk with me about it, because I'm trying to to process my feelings about the the third season, which just came back uh, from a, a hiatus for the sort of second half of it. I wanted to call it... Just sort of recommend it and call it out because it is probably one of the queerest shows on TV right now in terms of how much screen time and like story involvement the queer characters get. Wow. Um, so specifically yeah. we're here we're talking about um, the gay couple who's uh, Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz play them. And then there is a non-binary trans couple played by Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander. And in this season, they honestly truly like take up like fifty percent or more of the time of the show. And it's sort of surprised. Like, I'm shocked each episode that it continues, but they're really centered. I mean, we use that you know, that word can sound a little stilted, but it's true. They're like they're centered in the show in this way that's pretty surprising. That said, I don't think I like the season very much. And yeah. I think a lot even their, even those characters' plot lines, I think are kind of not great a lot of the time. So it's this weird experience of seeing something where the represent the sort of fact of representation is very impressive, but the the sort of art of it maybe isn't. So I'm watching it. I'm curious what others think about it. Uh Jules, you and I will have to talk about it. Uh because it's just so queer, it's just like they're there and, and that's like really the main characters of the show, except for the uh, Captain Burnham. So Star Trek Discovery, it's on Paramount Plus annoyingly, so uh, I'm not going to recommend <laughs> that you pay for that, but maybe still, still someone else does log in and, and watch it.
2: Well worth it if at least you want to just see Wilson Cruises a hot body in space! Ooh. <laughs> The gravity plating
0: has nothing on him.
1: But is that an ahistorical representation of bodies in space?
0: Well, it's in the 29th century. No, 30. Where are we now? 32nd century. Jules, do you mm-hmm. remember? Oh. I think 30, so the future. I don't know. I don't know what bodies of the future look like. But, um, but maybe at like least that. some
2: of them are trans <laughs> and queer of color. I will say that. Yes.
0: Yes, exactly.
2: Jules, what's yours? So yes, my addition to the gay agenda is kind of a nice follow-up to our discussion of short bus. maybe. It's an article that the journalist P.E. Moskowitz published and curbed February 2nd and it's called Inside an Accidental Trans Enclave in East Williamsburg. And it's this really lovely kind of long form piece about this building in East Williamburg that is just like not intentionally populated by so many incredible genius trans journalists, uh, artists, performers, academics, and has kind of like become known like... I haven't lived in New York famously for a few years, but um, I feel like, you know, I know half the people in this building. and, And because of COVID, of course, I haven't really yet, you know, had my moment. But I've literally like been waiting for years to like visit someone in this building because it's like this fascinating concentration of all of this, like this kind of like trans brain trust of like many genders and races and, you know, like interests. But what I love about the piece is that, you know, first of all, we need more breaks from just the doom and gloom and kind of, like, trans media coverage. But what I love about this is, like, you know, I guess if one of the questions of Short Bus today, you know, is, like, well, is that kind of, you know, potentially bohemian, you know, version of New York for queers and trans people, does that even exist anymore? What I love about this piece is it really digs into it, you know, not through a utopian lens, but asks about, like, sort of how trans people make... um our common precarity into the grounds for some of the most incredible creative striving and production that you could ever imagine and I just love this idea that even in you know this year of Our Goddess 2022 there is this rich concentration of trans brilliance um, you know going on in Brooklyn so I highly recommend it I just think it's Beautifully written. Moskowitz is a fantastic writer. And you just meet this like incredible cast of characters. I'm so biased because some of them are my friends, but like you're going to (laughs) fall in love with them. And I really think it's just like, I don't know, you know, sometimes you need to read something that makes you feel like there are, like that there's this, you know, cast of characters in the world that are fascinating and cool and interesting. And it's just like makes you feel good to know that you're sharing time on earth with them I really feel like this is that piece for me so uh highly recommend checking it out uh on curbed
1: that's very sweet what you say about characters I feel like I've been craving even more of that of the reminder of like the beauty and excitement of people out in the world that I haven't met yet in the pandemic when I've met so few new people So now I just need to get an invitation to that building. <laughs> I'll
2: try and hook us up.
1: <laughs> well, that's about all the time we have for this month. Listeners, thanks for sticking with us. And you can always send us your feedback and topic ideas at Outward at Slate.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Myron is our producer and Outward's intimacy coordinator. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the flaming hostess of our underground queer salon. If you like Outward, which you obviously do because you've stuck around for the credits, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. Read and review it. Help other people find our show. Outward will be back in your feeds March 23rd. Bye, Brian. Bye, Christina. Bye, Jules. Bye, Christina. Bye, Brian. Stay gay, everyone.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.